good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking another vampire AIDS allegory. We're talking sexy, dirty Bill Paxton. And we're talking fucking Catherine Bigelow. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking, I hate them when they ain't been shaved. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good one, eh? <laughs> Everyone, we are talking motherfucking Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark this week. And man, I mean, uh, well, it's a long time coming, Joe, because I know that you have yes. wanted to cover this for a long time, but uh-huh. this film has been difficult to find. <laughs> oh my God. And even when we programmed it, it was much easier to find. And at the moment that we're recording it, it's uh, more challenging to find. So this is the perils of Near Dark. Yeah, yeah, it was on Shudder. Now it's not. You can find it on a couple streaming services, but you got to hunt for it. But there supposedly is a 4K coming out at some point, I mm-hmm. think in 2022. Yes, yes. I believe that this film will become easier for folks to find, but uh, bear with us. We're going to walk you through it anyway. Exactly. And, well, jokes, people might know, this is a first-time watch for me. Not for you. This film holds a very special place in your heart and your life. Mm -hmm. But... Maybe we need, like, a tiebreaker. I'm tiebreaker, as if I'm going to fucking come down on you for this. Um, <laughs> you fucking asshole. <laughs> so, everyone, let's bring in our guest waiting in the wings. Uh, you may know him as Chibi UFO on Twitch and Twitter, where he discusses all things from anime to video games to films. Please welcome Kyle Adam Foster. Hello, hello. Ooh. Hello, Kyle. How are you doing? I am doing marvelous. Excellent. Are you ready for Near Dark? Uh, yes, I am very ready. I actually really love this movie. Ah, two against one. Two against one. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, this is, I, I, I get it. I totally get it, y'all. And I walked into this movie very open-minded, you know, like, I, I, I knew the vampire question thing, and I was like, oh, that's not really my cup of tea, but whatever. And again, I saw it. I see the appeal. I know when people like it. I just, it's not really for me. But I, I appreciate a lot of the craft that goes into it and what we'll probably talk about all of the big lowiness of it all. Yeah, which I think is a reasonable thing to say. Like, this is not a film that's going to work for absolutely everybody because it is pitting a couple of genres, not against each other, but in ways that they don't always mesh. And, you know, I kind of went down a bit of a rabbit hole thinking about which films fall into this category. And there's a few Western vampire films, but they are a little bit more few and far between. And I will say, Trace, at least we know that you probably like this movie better than you like The Forgotten. What is? Oh, yes. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck oh, is wow. The Forgotten? <laughs> yeah, it's so forgettable that you've already forgotten. Well, okay, no, no. So, I don't know for you two. So, again, here's the thing. I'm watching this movie last night, and I watched it again today, and I'm like, you know, I... That's cool. I it's it is it is a, an aesthetic that I am very much like I don't gravitate towards. I never really care for this kind of aesthetic. Doesn't mean I don't like it. It just means I don't in I, 
I don't like it. <laughs> I, I'm ambivalent towards it. And so it, it was, again, walking out, I wasn't sitting here like, oh, fuck this movie. I don't think it's a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination. I find it a bit difficult to feel passionate one way or another about it because it's just not an aesthetic that I particularly care for or enjoy watching. <laughs> but that being said, what about y'all? Like, I'm, I'm the negative Nancy over here. Kyle, <laughs> <laughs> so you selected this film, right? Yes, I did. Why is that? Well, I... Just starting with this movie and Trace, I find this interesting that you feel this way about the movie because, especially for myself, I didn't really love it the first time I saw it. So I thought, okay, well, this is interesting and I like the ideas to this and I prefer when a vampire movie really doesn't play uh, to the genre rules, but instead plays by its own rules or plays against rules of genre, mm. especially towards horror. And I thought, okay, well, I didn't love this movie, but I, I, I love its uniqueness. And I remember just a couple of years later after first seeing it, I was like, okay, well, you know what? Uh, I'll watch it again because I remember... I remember doing a podcast appearance for this and like thinking, okay, well, I'll give it another shot. And then I did. And I was like, oh, okay. I, now I really see this. I really enjoy this movie. I really understand this movie now. And further on further watchings, it's just, I don't know. There's, this movie has such a, its own voice that I really appreciate. And I feel like Catherine Bigelow really, really sculpted something interesting out of so many different genre ideas of like horror and what is a Western? What is a horror? What are vampires? And what can we do with vampires? And I mm -hmm. think she really sculpted something so unique and different. And it's just unfortunate, like it's release date and <laughs> what it came out against that I'm just like, uh, I, I feel like this movie was just, this is going to sound so pompous, but I like, I'm not trying to say like this movie is like the, the most genius movie ever, but I just feel like it just came out at the wrong time. <laughs> like, well, to, yeah, to be mm. fair, if you did think it was the most genius movie ever, that's also OK. And, and, <laughs> and, and Joe, but what you're saying, I mean, like I, I can I and yeah, I think the what it does with the vampires is very interesting. And, you know, you have to put yourself in that mindset, right? Mm. Like in 1987, this was very innovative, whereas like, you know, if you're watching this in 2022, it's. You have to put yourself in that mind. But Joe, what is – what is – I, I know you've told me how much you love this film, how much you respect this film, but I don't ever know if you've told me a story, if you have one about this. What What is your connection to this film? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I knew you were going to ask me about it and I had mm -hmm. to reflect back and think, when was the first time I even fucking saw this movie? And – I think it was around the mid-90s when I was hungry for horror. So, you know, my sister had gotten me into it in the early 90s, and I was trying to play catch-up and check out some of the classics, and this was a video store staple. Mm -hmm. It didn't have the terrible Twilight cover that they redid, um, because that thing is fucking atrocious. Yeah. oh man, oh, I boy. feel... As if this movie wasn't already, like, against a whole bunch of things. Like, oh, you know what we're going to do? Let's do the Blu-ray cover and let's make it off of Twilight, you know? Mm -hmm. So here's the thing. When it hit Amazon Prime, this is, I guess this is, like, back in 2017. I hit Prime for the first mm -hmm. time. But the tagline on the listing for this film was, before True Blood, before Twilight, mm -hmm. there was Near, da near Dark. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh. 
Like, you know what they're trying to do? And admittedly, in their defense, it actually worked when they were trying to repackage Mm -hmm. classics. Like, they rebranded Great Expectations and a couple of other classic books under the same kind of Twilight-esque cover. And it's because Twilight was fucking huge. Like, I'm not coming down on Twilight. It's not my deal. Yeah. It appeals to certain people a lot, and that's great, so good on them for trying to cash in, but it's just not at all representative of what this film is. Well, okay, for both of you, like, would you, I mean, obviously there is a romance of sorts in this film, but would you compare oh, the- so boring. Well, that's that's the thing, right? I mean, like, look, however any of us may feel about Twilight or True Blood, like, the romance is at least the central component of the story, and there's at least a magnetism between Sookie and Bill, or Bella and Edward. That's- That is the least comparable part of those films to me, too near dark. Yeah, I don't want to come down on Jenny Wright because I think she's doing fine. But Mm -hmm. all of the Caleb May stuff in this film is not what's interesting to me. (laughs) And and you know what? If that's your bag, then cool. Good for you. But yeah, yeah, I just I'm often bored by traditional heteronormative romances. (laughs) And Um, I feel like they're not anything really special in this movie. also feel like the relationship between Caleb and May, I feel like it has this certain type of a cold bluntness that I feel like I see in a lot of Catherine Bigelow's movies, and I'm not saying this as a criticism, it's just more that I think that, especially to whoever, whatever writer she gets, or if she writes her own things, like, I I just feel like there's a certain way to Catherine Bigelow with how she'll frame a a character or a character relationship, and and I I actually, I feel like I actually kind of like this for that uh, for this movie, I like that for this mm-hmm. movie, but I feel like it, it, at the same time, as much as I like it, it's easy, it's it's easy to write off as like, oh well, that can be just a little dismissive. Like, it's not the exact framing device for this movie, but I feel like there's still an importance to it. But like at the exact same time, it's super easy to write it off. Like, I completely I can understand that. You know, interestingly enough, I mean, I, I realize I haven't seen a ton of Catherine Bigelow films, so I've seen now this, I've seen Point Break, and I've seen um, The Heart Locker. Ooh, and okay. again, all films where I'm like, I get the appeal, I see it, but I, I, I never tend to gravitate towards the stories that Catherine Bigelow is telling. So maybe, maybe it's just my issue with her as her, as a storyteller, less so as a filmmaker. Yeah. And so actually to bring it full circle, so thank you, Kyle, for the segue. Oh, no problem. Part of this is that I ended up gravitating to this film because of Catherine Bigelow. Same, same. And it wasn't really because I was super familiar with her work. Like, I knew that she had ties to James Cameron. I knew that this film was famous because it used or employed a bunch of people from Terminator. Uh, So I was intrigued by it. I was intrigued by that cover art. But then... What really comes about when you're sort of first starting to broaden your horizons with horror and you're like, cool, are there women who direct horror films? This is one of those films that always comes up. Like, tell me a film that was directed by a woman in the horror genre and for a really fucking long time, this was it. Which is not to say that Catherine Bigelow invented female directors in horror <laughs> but she was one of the most prominent because of this film so the film took on a certain legacy in my mind and then when you watch it you're like wait this movie is doing some really weird stuff that feels very different from a lot of other horror and of course you know we could compare this to uh from dust till dawn the devil's rejects you know there's uh, a 1959 i think it's a universal film called curse of the undead which is actually doing western vampires way back 
in the day. So it's not as though she's breaking that mold, but like she is bringing something unconventional to the genre. And yeah, it's like a fucking woman in horror, which in 1987 was rare. Especially like this type of a movie. Like, yeah, it's not only vampire Western, but vampire Western with small spoonfuls of romance, art house, like get tell me about a woman that's doing that doing that in like this type of a movie not (laughs) only just in horror but just in everything that that this movie has for itself like that's something that would really blow me away is like you tell me like oh well there's this other woman and she made this movie i'm like holy shit i'm in like sign me up well, and there's something to be said, too, about why that is the case, which actually is a perfect segue <laughs> into the production of this film. Because outside of just general sexism, um, it was so hard to get women to make, I'm sorry, for Hollywood to let women make mm-hmm. anything other than of comedies. Course. Like, that that was, the, oh, you're a woman, you're frail and fragile, do this comedy, do this sappy film. Which, you know, I love my sappy films, but yeah, it just, they, people were like, oh, a woman wants to do a horror movie? That's strange. So, this is... Catherine Bigelow's solo directorial debut. She actually had co-directed a 1981 outlaw biker drama, The Loveless, starring Willem Dafoe. Funnily enough, she co-directed this movie with a man, Monty Montgomery. Um, Now, um, Joe, (laughs) this is a name that may not mean anything to you right now, but you may remember him as the actor that played the cowboy in Mulholland Drive, the one that had to read. nice. He couldn't remember his lines, and they had to put post-it notes on the actor he was talking to, and it made Uh his performance, like, creepier because he was reading it. (laughs) <laughs> if you do as I say, you will see me one more time. Yes. <laughs> so she she directed this movie with that man. And again, immediately at the gate, you have a co a female co-directed film that is an outlaw biker drama. A bit out of the gate so far. Now yeah. Moving on, I pulled a lot of this from um, uh, an article written for IndieWire, and this is from Gersh literary agent and talent agent Nancy Negroche, who wrote the article, How Catherine Bigelow and Eric Red Gamed the System to Launch Their Careers. Okay. Literary agent Melinda Jason, who was Nancy Negroche's mentor, signed Eric Red after he graduated from AFI as a directing fellow. Uh, barely 22, he had written a script called The Hitcher. Never heard of it. Not gay at all. <laughs> what? The Hitcher? Um... <laughs> It, um, Not I, sure it, about that one. <laughs> it was actually very funny today. Um, I was reading an article in a very prominent horror publication with someone talking about Near Dark, and they were like, Eric Red, writer of The Hitchhiker, and I was like, ooh. What? <laughs> um, that's a long time coming then, because that movie was done in, like, what, the 60s? The 50s? The Hitcher? No, the Hitcher? that's... That's 86. Yep. 86. Well, I know, I, no, but The Hitchhiker. There's oh, The Hitchhiker. Also, oh. The Hitchhiker. <laughs> also, also directed by a woman. Speaking of uh, other... Yeah, Synergy. Directed by women. Yeah, I know. It's funny how that works. So it's like, wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, so he had, ri- he had written this script inspired by an incident you know, where he picked up a hitchhiker driving cross-country. And they sold the script to TriStar. And the, 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 the beginning of this piece is basically like, the issue is a lot of writers expect to direct. Especially if they're first-time writers writers and first time like maybe directors and that is not how it works in hollywood so tristar was not ready to work with a first timer let alone a 22 year old first timer um a studio might be inclined to go with this but not a writer because if they have the writer directing the film that opens the door to just disagreements about how to interpret and revise the many creative variables in the production process that might run contrary to the writer's intention so a lot of times when you have a writer director it's like oh this is a big name male director who's already proven himself and we know he can turn out hits let him do what he wants that was not the case for mr red (laughs) 
<laughs> so nevertheless, um, Eric was getting a lot of positive attention for the Hitcher, and they learned. Um, and so that is there. And I, Bigelow had known him throughout this time because, I mean, it's the year before this. But Miss Nancy had spent two years sending out Catherine Bigelow's Columbia graduate school student film, The Setup, to a slew of studio producers, independent producers and studio executives. As she'd intended, they were stunned by the film's staged but genuinely intense street fight. And mm. the benefit here that Catherine Bigelow had over Eric Redd was that she had an advantage of an impressive social skills and focused intensity <laughs> on her goal to become an important film director. Now, we, I know. I hear you laughing already, Joe. <laughs> no, it's just it's one of those things where because I think Catherine Bigelow is so associated with male oriented genres and genre films in particular. It's just kind of ironic that we're like, well, what did she have that other people didn't? <laughs> well, she acted like a fucking man because that's what you had to do to get in the door in the god damn 80s <laughs> so she though she understood to get that to get the opportunity to direct she'd have to write the script first she was brilliant at delivering the respectfully polished assertion that she'd mastered genres until now exclusively monopoly monopolized by male directors mm-hmm. so to get her into the game nancy made two studio deals these projects were both conceived by producers as cutting edge tailored to cast popular Brat Pack actors, but were in fact tepid, bordering on silly. Oh, okay. Catherine went into each situation in good faith, but they both knew that she was on a fool's errand. Uh, though they insisted they wanted smart, hip genre films with an edge rarely seen from a studio-generated project, they didn't really mean it. So, yeah. <laughs> Oh, so it's just Hollywood, is what you're saying. Yeah, of yes. course. Hollywood not really backing up its own words. They wanted this, and that's what they got. Exactly. But before we're not quite at near dark yet. So when that shit fell through, uh, she got Catherine uh, an episode to write for a network show, The Equalizer, the original Equalizer. Nice. Which at least was consistent with her creative abilities. But Warner Brothers slash CBS refused to consider her as a director for the episode she was writing. Jesus Christ. So. After The Hitcher came out, Eric had street cred as an architect for stylized violence, but his his youthfulness probably got him into some issues uh, in a conference room situation where he lacked experience and, for lack of a better word, tact. So he shot his mouth off. <laughs> probably so. And it's Catherine ending up cleaning up the messes and, you know, doing... I mean, I'm not trying to doubt Eric Red because he's written movies that I very much love. Uh, he created, a, directed, and wrote, and... Uh, one of my very favorite uh, werewolf movies, Bad Moon. So, well, and, and, and I am not coming down on Reddit. I mean, granted, I'm reading no. words here, but mm. but but it's also a thing where it's like, well, if we want to talk about privilege, right? Like mm. men yeah. historically. <laughs> yeah, he got to fuck up and still have a career, whereas she had to be polished and perfect at all times. Yes, and she's cleaning up everyone else's messes while doing it too. So that's nice. So, well, so that's the thing. So Catherine, on the other hand, was skilled at interpreting the dynamic in a conference room and addressing directly with aplomb. She was able to surprise people with her poise and confidence by tempering her basic intensity. She had this knack of projecting she knew something you didn't, but was too polite to unsettle you, and instead graciously invited you into her private perspective. So, Oh my god. Hmm. Wow. That's a lot of words for just saying she was personable. <laughs> but yeah. also, like, like, mm. like determined. Right. And it's, it, like, just... All the stuff you have to do, like, as a woman, and then, oh, you also have to know how to direct and do this and do that. Like, wow. Oh, my God. Yes. So, both Eric Red and Catherine Bigelow saw the system for what it was and took matters into their own hands. They were going to be strategic and write two scripts together. 
The first was Undertow, and Nancy gets this deal with them. You know, Eric's going to direct, and then the second's going to be Near Dark with Catherine directing. So since they were co-writers, they co-owned the rights to the screenplays they wrote together. Uh, no one could undermine the directing attachment. But right. let's skip Undertow, because unfortunately, Undertow um, got us. They sold the agreement, and it was going to happen, but then it just fell through. It's one of those things in Hollywood. Right. So he didn't get to direct his film. So... When it comes to Near Dark, so at least in terms of writing the script, you know, vampire films had become trendy by the time Near Dark's production uh, had started with the success of films like Fright Night in 1985, bringing vampires into a new era. Um, Lost Boys came out three months before this movie was released. And when working on this to, to sell to people, Bigelow wanted a film to film a Western movie that departed from cinematic convention, which we have kind of touched on previously, but we'll go on more into the plot. Mm-hmm. When she and Red found financial backing for a Western difficult to obtain, uh, it was suggested to them that they try mixing a Western with another more popular genre, i.e. the horror film. Always. Her interest in revisionist interpretation of cinematic tradition led her and Red to combine two genres that they regarded as ripe for interpretation, um, the, the Western and the vampire movies. The combination of genre had been revisited at least twice before in the big screen with Curse of the Undead from 1959. I think that's the one you mentioned, Joe. Yes, yeah. And, and Billy the Kid versus Dracula in 66. But yeah, we got from Dust Till Dawn, 1998, we'd see John Carpenter's Vampires. And even to uh, more modern, we would see 2014's A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Another female director. Exactly. Perfect. Not only did the script have the same spare and effortless dialogue, but Catherine had interlaced into its pages copies of photographs from a recent show at the Museum of Modern Art, which Nancy's like, I normally wouldn't let people do this, but it fucking sold the script. I added the fuck in there because it for a fact. (laughs) (laughs) My kind of man. (laughs) These weren't the usual portraits of the fashionable or famous, but rather ordinary rural Americans with haunting and beautiful faces that bored straight to the heart, including the images was unorthodox, but the images offered a canny glimpse of how Catherine envisioned near dark to be. Mm. They had written it on spec, and if you don't know what that means, and I mean, like, our listeners here, but um, if you don't, uh, it, it just means when writers complete a manuscript and submit it before receiving an assignment and signing a contract. So you can write a script on spec, no money, and get no money and never get paid, but like, hey, mm-hmm. you wrote it. But that being said, that did give them the benefit to, to, to figure out the terms of the sale if they were going to get this script sold. And that deal was, it was contingent on Catherine Bigelow directing this script. Which sometimes gets you into trouble, but in this case, actually worked out for them. Well, not at first, though, because here's the thing. Many producers made offers. They loved the script. But every counteroffer did not have Catherine Bigelow directing this movie. Yeah, Jim, what I want. Hmm. They even offered more money than what they were asking. They promised to get a bigger budget to lure in a quote-unquote important director and get expensive stars, as long as... Bigelow would not direct this movie. Wow, this is so bullshit. So, enter Ed Feldman. Ed Feldman produced The Hitcher, and he stepped up to the plate. He guaranteed Catherine the same directing deal they got in uh, Eric Red for his undertow, his unproduced script. Uh-huh. He managed to get the film financed with Catherine, not only as a first-time director, but also, to his credit, he was supportive of letting her cast it the way she wanted. And pin in that, because just for perspective on female directors at the time. So again, Hollywood is filled with sexist, but the only made like women directing for the majors were Penny Marshall and Amy Heckerling, and a few others who squeaked in through network TV sitcoms. Yep. The idea of a woman directing anything but a comedy just wasn't on anyone's mind. Uh, that included minorities, and in most cases, minority A-list as well. 
There were a few that fought the tide, so Martha Coolidge directed a drama about date rape in the mid-70s, but ended up directing comedies like Valley Girl and Joy of Sex in the 80s. Susan Seidelman's Desperately Seeking Susan is a more risky story that introduced Madonna to mainstream audiences, but that's still comedy. Barbara Streisand's Yentl, not really a comedy, but it's heavy on the romance. Hmm. You've got rock documentarian Penelope Spheris of the decline of Western civilization fame. Uh, she transitioned into comedy with Wayne's World. Right. It is really only Randa Haynes who directed a true drama, Children of a Lesser God. But Nancy does credit Sundance, film festivals in general, but especially Sundance, with starting to open up wider opportunities for filmmakers of all kind. Oh, that's interesting, too, because nowadays we look at genre films that go to Sundance and we think, oh, that's not a right audience. But yeah, I mean, Sundance has been paving the way for independent films and basically other filmmakers for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So back to the casting, you know, Bigelow knew and later married director James Cameron. And I'm sure she's so tired of hearing like, oh, yeah, the one that was married to James Cameron, right? Yep. And I'm guilty of that. I will confess that was my literal introduction to this film was like, if she hadn't been tied to Cameron, I may not have even taken notice. But yeah, as a person who has a storied career and a great directorial eye, what a fucking just, ah, it, it must be <laughs> yeah. so frustrating. <laughs> Well, especially because they were only married for two years. 19, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, I guess three. 1989, 1991. But yes, obviously, James Cameron directed Aliens, and you know this film shares a few cast members, which is Bill Paxton, Jeanette Goldstein, and Lance Henriksen. Michael Bean was offered the role of Jesse Hooker, Henriksen's role, but he declined mm. it because he found the script confusing and unsatisfactory. Ooh. Yeah. But it's important to note that Cameron, because apparently people like to think that Cameron helped uh, Bigelow get a lot of this off the ground, especially the cast of his films. Cameron had no input on Near Dark, including the casting. Uh, Bill Paxton read the script, shared it with Henriksen, and Bigelow auditioned all three actors before she contacted Cameron to see if he minded her using so many aliens <laughs> actors. <laughs> see, like, that is so telling about Bigelow, though, right? It's like, okay, so we all think that she uses Cameron to get this great cast of, you know, A-list stars. And the reality is, is that she got them on her own. And then she like did Cameron the solid of being, hey, do you mind if I use your people? Because they're my people now. <laughs> well, but but that's but no, because I mean, I don't know what stage their relationship was at this point, because this is like, you know, 86, 87. They're not married for another two years. But it's also like she knows don't fucking step on a man's work in Hollywood. She's not going to go poach his actors because that could have bad repercussions for her. A woman director. Mm -hmm. The closest the film has to even... Like, having any type of reference to aliens is literally a movie theater sign, like the marquee on yeah. the very top of the, the, the awning is that says, now playing aliens, if you look yep. in the background shots. Oh, yeah, no, I, I, I definitely clocked that on the first watch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it also shares the cinematographer that does help with the visual aesthetic. Well, but. that too, that too. Actually, also, uh, cinematographer Adam Greenberg, by the way, a horror queers alumni, because he did, well... Not only shot both Terminators, um, he went on to do Ghost and Sister Act and Sphere, but mm. also Snakes on a Plane. Oh, my oh, God. Wow. <laughs> Patreon audio commentary exclusive, <laughs> if you want to hear us revisit that after a really long Perfect. time. Now, into the release of this film, which was bungled, but not intentionally so. Near Dark was the last movie produced and released by D.E.G., De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, because the studio went bankrupt. Oops. As a result, the film did not receive much publicity during its release in the fall of 87, which uh, led in turn to its box office failure. <laughs> now, DEG, their first releases were actually in 1986, so two years in, they go bankrupt. <laughs> oh, oh no. 
It went bankrupt two years after Million Dollar Mystery, among other films, failed at the box office. But Coralco Pictures acquired them in 89. And this isn't really relevant to Near Dark, but I thought I'd include it because do y'all know Coralco at all? I've heard of it, and I feel like I've seen the logo on some movies. So, you'd have. Funnily enough, Coralco also eventually went bankrupt. It hit its peak in the late 80s and early 90s with blockbuster success. Um, They did the Rambo franchise, Total Recall, Terminator 2, Basic Instinct, Universal Soldier, Cliffhanger, Stargate. Oh my god, how do you go bankrupt after all those movies? (laughs) Oh, I will tell you. I will tell you. The company was losing money overall and required a corporate restructuring in 1992. However, in 1995, Cutthroat Island intended oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Cutthroat Island. Oh. intended to be a comeback for the studio, instead lost $147 million and brought the company to an end. Which the irony, considering that Near Dark is like, you know, the end of this other this other company and it's Western, which was a dead genre at the time. Mm-hmm. And then a pirate movie ends Caralco in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> also notable for really fucking over Gina Davis's career. Yeah, no kidding. Which I will not forgive or forget. Same. I think it soured her on Hollywood, though, right? Because she's really, she's moved in more into behind the scenes producing efforts and also really standing in for women in film. Well, I think she got fucking sick of being blamed for things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so... Near Dark is released on October 2nd, 1987 in 262 theaters, grossing $635,000 in its opening weekend. It uh, expanded to 429 theaters the following week, which would turn out to be its widest release. Against a $5 million budget, it goes on to make $3.4 million. And compare that to The Lost Boys, which had an $8 million budget and made $32 million. Yeah, that is a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Now, reception actually was fairly positive for the film. On Rotten Tomatoes, we've got an 81% with an average score of 7.3 out of 10. Letterboxd, we've got a 7.2 out of 10. They praise her intermixing of vampire legends. Um, they love Bill Paxton. They thought it was a gorgeously shot film. It was beautiful. Uh, she has studied compositions, blah, 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 blah. But it just didn't translate to a commercial. But again, like, I've always been sitting in this thing like, oh, Near Dark was um like a unf- uh, unwarranted flop. Of sorts, and it just wasn't. Like the studio just couldn't afford to publicize this movie. Yeah, it's legitimately shocking to think that Lost Boys comes out in the same year and does so much business. And admittedly, yeah, they're very different films. Like, I think it's easier to look at Lost Boys and say, "Well, this is a fun movie." And yes, it does have a Rat Pack, Brat Pack, whichever one of them it has in Kiefer Sutherland. But sure. they're very different films. But at the same time, it's shocking to think that. People wouldn't say, oh, hey, there's another vampire film. But the thing is, is that if they don't know it's coming out or if they can't get to a theater, then how is it going to make any money? Mm-hmm. And that's why this one didn't. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, th- th- that's pretty much all I have here. So why don't we get into this plot? Okay, so I'm going to give a little bit of credit to James Kane for their site in their own league, as well as John DeBoer, who has a medium post called Blood, Sex, and Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark. I didn't pull direct quotes from it, but it did help to inform some of my own opinions about the film. Oh, I'm really, I pulled the John DeBoer piece too, so I'm glad you got that. <laughs> yeah. Nice. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like you put the title of the film in plus and queer. then you put plus queer or plus gay. And it's like you usually come up with one or two good pieces. So good SEO, gents. 
but that article did a good job of like yeah of like yeah. telling you what the national mentality towards queer people was in 1987. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we open on Caleb Colton, who Porn is star name a. Oh, an absolute porn star in both, like, name and also face, because Adrian Pazdar is serving just gorgeous model-esque looks in this movie. Kyle, did you watch Heroes? Uh, unfortunately, at that time, I did not. Oh, no. I thought you were going to say, unfortunately, I didn't. I I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, okay, so I, I, I've only, I only know this man from Heroes, and I hate his character on Heroes, so I... Oh, he's a bad character. Yeah. I've always found his face to be very annoying because I just know him from Heroes and that's it. But he uh-huh. acquits himself better here even if he's like Mr. Blando protagonist. Absolutely. And this is my opportunity to once again pitch Profit, the cancelled Fox <laughs> television show where Adrian Pazdar lives in a box and works his way up the corporate ladder by fucking over other employees to get what he wants. Great show. One season. Mwah. It's the 90s though, right? It is the 90s, yeah. I just... <laughs> I love that you're pimping out this one season wonder from the fucking 90s. <laughs> Babies, this is when I was staying home every weekend to watch genre Same. television. Same Let me here. tell you about The Pretender and The Profiler and The Others and Profit and all the other good genre shows from the late 90s. <laughs> it's called Joe Didn't Have a High School Anything. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> That was sad. Let's move on. So, you know, just in case you didn't know what kind of movie you're watching and how sly this script is, we open on him killing a blood-filled mosquito. So you're like, oh, things that bite and things that suck blood. Got it. <laughs> well, they, they never say vampire in the film, so it, it, you need the visual cue. <laughs> Wait, what kind of movie is this? <laughs> Yeah, so as the credits roll, we watch as Caleb drives through open country into a small town. He banters with a couple of bozo idiots, and then he spots this really attractive young woman. She's eating ice cream. Her name, we will eventually find out, is May. She's played by Jenny Wright. And again, the opening dialogue is he approaches her and he asks, can I have a bite? The answer is yes, Caleb. So they go on a bit of a date. They're driving around. She's putting out very obvious signs that she is interested in more than just some casual necking. And I really enjoy this opening scene for just kind of taking it slow. So they pause on the highway. She encourages him to look at the stars. He's getting moony-eyed thinking that they're going to have some great makeout session. But obviously what she's cueing us as the audience to is that she's a goddamn vampire. And this is, I mean, would y'all say that this is different than what you would normally expect? Because wouldn't it be the male vampire going after the lonely female typically in this kind of film? Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, yeah. Mm-hmm. And in a Western, for that matter, as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, this movie loves to fuck around with gender roles. And this is actually the nature of their dynamic for the... And this is actually the nature of their dynamic throughout the entire movie. May is in control, and Caleb is kind of pussy-whipped. <laughs> well, but he has to be, because he, he depends on her for food. Well, no, but I'm saying, like, normally, like, there's one scene where he tries to take too much blood, and she looks pained. And I feel like that's a more conventional route. Like, he embraces becoming a vampire, and he loves to live for it, right? Like, think of the Lost Boys. And that's something that I've always respected and appreciated about Catherine Bigelow's uh, films, Mm -hmm. is really playing around with gender roles and gender binaries and all that stuff. Like, that's the type of thing that gives me life in film and just anything. And media is playing around with gender dynamics and Mm -hmm. really just 
going and doing something with it. Well, and I would actually argue that this isn't just an aspect of this film. It really is part of her oeuvre. She seems to be traditionally uninterested in regular, like, heterosexual romances. I actually think, especially in the early parts of her career, she's far better at doing either platonic relationships or queer-slash-homosexual-themed relationships. Like, Point Break is a great film, not because of Laurie Petty's character. (laughs) How dare you? As a... Lori Petty fanboy, I, I take offense to that. <laughs> I mean, she is great, but when people talk about Point Break, they talk about the Swayze Reeves relationship and how mm-hmm. gay true. it is, right? That's true. So instead of taking her home, as she requests, because even though we like Caleb, and yes, he is a little bit bland, he's also an asshole and he doesn't listen to people. So she says, hey, you need to take me home. And he's like, how about I take you to see my stupid horse? And the horse (laughs) doesn't react well to her because, again, she's a vampire. Okay, like, he is super rapey in this opening scene. He's like, like, just take me home. Well, maybe I will, but you have to kiss me first, dude. (laughs) I mean, the 80s called. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's very much like, oh, this he's just a hot-blooded American boy, Trace. Ooh. So when she realizes how close it is to Dawn, she's like, no, you need to take me home immediately. And yes, this is when he barters for the kiss. So we do get a relatively passionate makeout scene. And then she just full on bites his neck. And I think, Kyle, you were suggesting earlier that this movie doesn't do a lot of traditional expected vampire tropes. And we will also... In addition to never saying vampire, we will never see fangs in this movie. Yeah. Nope. So she just full on bites his neck. And that would be painful without fangs. Also, script magic. The horse that does not like vampires, put that in your back pocket. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> so after she bites him, she takes off running through a field because it is still, you know, dawns on the horizon. So... Uh, unfortunately, this is when Caleb realizes that the truck won't start, and he is kind of dazed from blood loss, so he tries to walk home, but he starts smoking in the sunlight, which I love. It's so immediate how quickly people turn into vampires after they've been bitten if they don't get killed. So as he's crossing this field and smoking... Uh, he is seen by his veterinarian father, Loy, who is played by Tim Thomerson, as well as his younger sister, Sarah, who is played by Marcy Leeds. And they they don't seem to understand exactly what's happening. Like, I, if I saw a member of my family looking like they were set on fire, I would be a little bit more perturbed. But um, they don't really get anxious until they see a careening RV stop so that they can scoop Caleb up and we should note that he loses his cowboy hat as he is grabbed by Severin who is the Bill Paxton character and of course this is just one of many iconic American visual signifiers that we will deploy in this film. I will say one uh we'll come back to Bill Paxton but the 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 inclusion of the father and the sister that that keep coming back and play a mm-hmm. major role in this one that was the most surprising aspect of this narrative to me. Yeah. I really liked it but I also think that that also kind of comes from well the western so from the western genre. So I I I found an article and it's actually written this year. Um, and it's uh, LaDonna Pietra, and she writes, In Year of the Vampire, Near Dark is a Western horror that reworks the captivity narrative. And it's focusing on uh, the captivity narrative, uh, which also was prevalent in the Western genre. So right. 
evolving out of a semi-fictionalized like 17th and 19th century personal accounts into frontier fiction uh like the last of the mohicans uh and or or we're going into john ford's the searchers Mm. their plots typically revolve around dangerous hostiles kidnapping innocents and forcibly assimilating them and unless a noble hero saves them and they are often inextricably tangled up with how male characters define themselves. Uh, if you can't protect the ones you love, you're hardly a man. But if you can somehow save your wife or niece or daughter from awful treatment at the hands of the terrifying others with a capital O, you've proven yourself superior to those others. Now, obviously, in Westerns, the others are typically going to be indigenous folks. Uh, yes. You know. So Near Dark swaps out the Hurons, the Comanches, or Mormon polygamists, if you will, uh, Mm. for vampires, which is a lot to improve the awful racist and religious stereotypes that are practically guaranteed with those stories. But it doubles down on the swirling fears of sexual assault and transformation that underpin these stories, turning them into something much weirder and terrifying. Which I think is fascinating, right? Like, that's why to me, and I wonder, Trace, if this is one of the reasons why you don't love the movie quite as much, is that in some ways, it's far more of a West than it is a horror film, even though it very clearly has a lot of horror tropes. Yeah, I mean, it's also because vampires also are not my favorite subgenre of film. Like, like vampires are kind of down there with possession films and zombies where I'm like, I just feel like I've seen so many iterations of this that it's really hard to surprise me. And I'm not holding that aspect against Near Dark because of when it came out. Mm Mm-hmm. It just still means, though, that unfortunately, like, you're combining Westerns and vampires, two subgenres that I, sorry, one genre and one subgenre that I don't particularly gravitate towards. So it's just harder for me to make a connection. Right. So inside this RV, yes, we have Severin, and he wants to take Caleb's head off, and May ends up protecting him. This is one of many times that she will do this throughout the course of the film. And so the RV dries off. So Loy ends up reporting Caleb's abduction to the police, and that kicks off this sort of side narrative where we get to see the father and the younger sister try to find Caleb. And I appreciate that it doesn't come to nothing like it is actually important to the story. But I do think the first time you watch this movie, you're like, oh, God, are we going to follow these characters for a while? Y'all are going to laugh at me when Homer comes across Sarah at the vending machine in the, mm-hmm. the third act of the film. You forgot who she was, didn't you? I've totally forgot who she was. <laughs> so, but it was really funny because when he walks in and he, like, when he, when, when Caleb walked in and he sees her, I literally, I was like, oh, <laughs> shit, that's the sister. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you were also wondering, why is this little girl out at like two in the morning getting a pop from the vending machine? Oh, I was it's very like, confused. It's two in the morning. What the hell? What is going on? I mean, from what we know of Caleb, I don't know that Loy is doing a great job raising these children. We should note that there is no mother. So in 1980s Reagan-era conservatism, this is, well, this is why you need a nuclear family. If there was a mother on this homestead, these children wouldn't have come to trouble. Well, because the sister is a, I don't want to say tomboy, but she's... I mean, she's working on a ranch, on a farm. Like, mm-hmm. she does manual labor instead of playing with dolls like little girls should. So even in this, though, you know, you have your one female child character who is already kind of bending those gender roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would actually argue that May is kind of the most traditional female figure. And even that, you could say, is different than usual because, of course, she's a vampire. Well, and she's also styled to look less effeminate. Mm, don't forget this is the era of punk as well because i think that's actually one of the other things you don't like about the movie traces this is a punk film yeah i don't like that (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, so we're introduced to the rest of the family inside this RV, and we have Matriarch Diamondback, played by Jeanette Goldstein. This movie needs more Jeanette Goldstein. Yes, it does. Agreed. We have Child Homer, as you mentioned, who is one of the other queer connections of this film, played by Joshua John Miller, who would go on to become one of the two writers of The Final Girls. Yep. And then finally, of course, we have the patriarch leader, Jesse Hooker, another porn star name, played by Lance (laughs) Henriksen, and God damn, I just love Lance Henriksen. This is when he's not like Bruce Willis style phoning it into genre fare. So yeah. he actually still gives a shit about this performance. And he's great. I've never because I feel like I've only seen Lance Henriksen in supporting roles because I have not seen Pumpkinhead, which I don't know, maybe mm. one day I'll watch it. So it, it was really nice to get to see him do this. I mean, I know he's not the lead of the film, but like be your primary antagonist like this was very fun. Yeah, I would say if anything, the more I rewatch this movie, the more I'm just like, can we get rid of Caleb and May and just focus on Diamondback and Jesse? Because I'm fascinated by them and Severin. How more mm-hmm. I can take or leave because admittedly a, a child vampire is never a main draw to me. <sighs> Yeah, Kyle, do, do you like the child vampire stuff? Like, not just not just in this movie, but like in movies in general. Um, well, if it, when it plays to this dynamic in Near Dark, I do like it. I think it's a very tragic character, mm-hmm. and yeah. I think it's very interesting, especially when getting a child actor to really come into this very adult, these adult themes and very tragic moments, and you can still get a child actor to really properly emote to stuff like that. I think that's, I think that's brilliant. Yeah, you need a really good child actor. I would say that uh, John Miller is pretty good in this movie. If anything, Homer just doesn't quite get enough screen time to really sell you on the tragedy of this character. Right. I mean, compared to something like like Kirsten Dunn's Interview with the Vampire, when mm. it's like, no, like, this is a subplot of this movie. Yeah, what we get the most where he's like, oh, I'm a I'm a monster in a child's in a tiny body or whatever. Yeah, everybody kind of gets one line to explain their backstory a little bit. And in part, I think that was a deliberate decision. I saw the um, I have the two disc DVD edition of this movie. Um, <laughs> it comes with a liner book that expands a little bit on how the film doesn't toe the line of traditional vampires in other media. And they praise the fact that we don't really know anything about these characters origin stories except for like the occasional line throughout the film and i would agree with that but also it does leave me wanting like i want to know more about these characters i think it's a thing that i mean like yeah you you could argue you could make an argument that they are one-dimensional characters because we don't know much about them but i think at the Mm -hmm. end of the day it does a disservice because it doesn't hamper the pacing of the film right and bigelow knows that while she is making a visually striking film and you know like making it as like you know as well as she can and wants it to be she also understands this is a vampire western Mm -hmm. (laughs) oh definitely Yeah, and I think from a studio marketing perspective and from a storytelling perspective, focusing on the central romance, I personally don't gravitate to it as much. But this is on par with what we see in both Fright Night and The Lost Boys. Like, this was the way we told these stories, specifically in the 80s, but it's not that different from how we tell stories nowadays either. And out of all three of those movies, I... I don't think yeah, I don't care about the, the relationship in this or Lost Boys. I actually do really care about Charlie and Amy in Friday Night, if mm-hmm. only because Amy has like Amy's a presence in that movie. Like she's yeah. like she, she Amanda Beers is given more to work with in that movie, which makes her character more endearing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, let, let's keep that in mind as we move ahead, because I do think comparisons between the three, I mean, obviously, yes, there's the hunger mm-hmm. that we could lump into this as part of the 80s fascination with vampires, but that one technically comes before the AIDS crisis, and it does feel like it's doing its own sort of unique thing, even though visually you could say that Tony Scott is kind of on par visually with what Catherine Bigelow is doing here. Oh, have you seen The Hunger, Kyle? Uh, no, unfortunately, I have not. Oh, okay. Yeah, you Kyle, that's a really good one. <laughs> no, no th- th- that's a movie that I've never seen. I was like, oh, it's Tony Scott doing vampires. I don't really care, whatever. And I walked out very surprised that I liked Tony it as much Scott as I did. Tony Scott doing vampires. I am mm-hmm. fucking there. I love Tony Scott, and I love vampires, so hell yes. It's a lesbian vampire movie with David Bowie, Catherine Deneuve, and Susan Sarandon. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds like pure magic. <laughs> yeah. It's basically a music video combined with a perfume commercial show with the most gorgeous sexy people you've ever seen on screen just injected into my veins yeah yeah really really good but also a bomb when it came out yep of course of course (laughs) i mean you watch it and you're just like oh my god there's no commercial appeal in this movie but fuck (laughs) yes let me have it on replay (laughs) but at the same time i I know we're on a tangent but like when i watched that because we did it for one of our articles before we had the podcast and Mm -hmm. I was surprised at how straightforward it, it, it was a very straightforward narrative and it wasn't as abstract as I thought it was going to be. That is true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So Jesse basically tells Caleb, okay, you can hang with us. You've got one week to prove yourself. And part of that will be a baptism by blood. So you need to kill someone to impress us. I do like the ticking clock too. We have here to like to add suspense to the narrative. Mm -hmm. So because it has been spotted, the RV must be destroyed. So they torch it. And this is where we get the one brief line of dialogue about Severin and Jesse's past, which is the 1871 Chicago fire. So there's the insinuation that they lit the fire that killed hundreds of people and burned down more than half of Chicago. Yep. Oh, damn. Apparently, historically, even though it's unproved, a cow started that fire by knocking over a lantern. But mm-hmm. Oh, no. That's what the Chicago Museum said when I visited it a couple years ago. But they can't prove it. They can't prove it. No. <laughs> they can't prove it wasn't vampires. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was a vampire cow. Maybe Bill Paxton was a an eternal person and just accidentally, oh, no, started the fire. <laughs> Yes. Oh, that just makes me sad now that Bill Paxton isn't around. I know. Around. Rest in peace. And I keep forgetting he's dead. I looked it up. I was like, oh, he died five years ago. Five years ago. I know. Ago. And that yeah. breaks my heart, too, because uh, one of the uh, one of my other favorite things about this movie is Bill Paxton. Oh, my God. Yes. Yes. I absolutely love his performance in this movie. It is fucking excellent. Mm-hmm. Just, just great. Like, it, 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 he manages to have something that's actually threatening and menacing while at the same time, it never falls into, like, any sort of uncanny goofiness. Like, it, it, he's, he has this specific edge to him that works perfectly, and he does such a great job. It's like an agent of chaos thing, where it's like, he oh, doesn't... Yeah. He's an anarchist. Oh, definitely. And, I mean... <sighs> bringing in the AIDS allegory, you know, if you want to view all of these people as like, you know, quote unquote infected by HIV, it's kind of a way of looking how each of them react to it for, for Severin, which I keep reading that he, like, you know, he is probably the most queer coded of all the vampires yes, in the film. Absolutely. His is like, well, I'm going to die eventually. So I might as well make the most of it. I'm going to burn the fucking town down. I'm going to mm-hmm. party. I'm going to party hard. I'm going to, rocket like it's you know this year or something like you know i'm gonna party like it's 1999 i'm gonna burn the fucker down and like punk rock is shit hell yeah like yep that's perfect yeah party like it's 1987 
1871. Perfect. There we go. Okay, so they don't have a home, so they set out on foot to find sort of new lodgings and figure out their plan. And Caleb uses this as an opportunity to get the fuck out of Dodge. So (laughs) he says, May, hey, thanks for the fun. I'm going to go home. And she lets him because she knows he's going to come back. So he goes to the bus station and his unusual behavior and his bloody collar is noticed by Trace. Did you recognize actor Troy Evans? No. So he is from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Oh, wow. Wait, is it like Hitchcock and Scully? Yes. Oh, my God. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. Wait. Oh, my God. Because one of them... Okay, never mind. Sorry. Uh, the other one in Brooklyn Nine-Nine was also in Big Love with Bill Paxton. He was a regular on that show. Oh, oh wow. that's fun. Yeah. Have, did, y'all, have y'all, did y'all ever watch Big Love? Uh, I've met to, but I never got around to it. And I've seen a couple of seasons, but I ended up falling off because that was kind of the time period where I wasn't keeping up with prestige tv yeah it was also i think i think there was a two-year gap between the first two seasons because of the writer's strike but oh my god uh, that that show is so good <laughs> well of course it's got all these women that you love and they're all being bitchy and <laughs> yeah. backstabby to one another well it's like chloe 70 being a bitch gene Triplehorn being a matriarch and then jennifer goodwin being well every uh, role you've ever seen jennifer yeah. goodwin be yeah, yeah. yes of course <laughs> Yeah, it's a great cast and a solid premise. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, so yes, this uncredited, he's just referred to as plain clothes officer in the credits. He ends up taking pity on Caleb because, of course, this poor boy, he's just, you know, probably out drunk in public. So we should absolutely give him some money and send him on his way home because that's what we do for good Americans. He does think he's a junkie at first, though. He's very much like a what are you on? Yeah, but as soon as he realizes that he's not a junkie, he's just like a boy down on his luck. He helps him and sends him on his way. Yeah, the the, the, the friendly South. Well, I, I think it's a class critique as well, and I, it'll become more important in a bit. So yes, uh, he does send him on his way. He tells him to be a good boy before he gets on the bus, which I thought was such an interesting line choice. Yeah, I agree. I thought the same thing. So (laughs) good boy is very, I don't want to say demeaning, but it, um, there's an air of condescension to it, but I also liken it to, I don't know, like gay porn. (laughs) Like it's like, it's like very like a, like a daddy, daddy, yeah. relationship where it's like good boy that be mm-hmm. a good boy for your daddy yes. like that. yeah i think all of those readings are applicable and in play so caleb barely gets on the bus before he gets violently ill he ends up having to get off he returns to may and this is where we get the first sort of feeding scene so she lets him feed from her wrist we hear the sound of a heartbeat accelerating so trace we are back-to-back episodes <laughs> for heartbeat on the soundtrack not to mention not to mention during a thunderstorm with giant pistons in the background i mean i'm sorry i think uh, i apologize this this might make me sound just a little sexist but i feel like only a woman could film something that sensual and just do it so straight-faced and perfectly (laughs) filmed without ruining without ruining it like yeah just having that certain view to a scene like that make it so sensual without overdoing it or underdoing it or anything like that. Well, no, I mean, I, I, I don't think that makes you sound sexist at all. And I think it's important, too, because, I mean, like, I, I will admit, watching this, I was like, not that I'm not seeing the female, like, like uh, uh, POV here. Like, no, yeah. no, of course, yeah. But, 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 but I, 
honestly, I would love for y'all, like, if y'all have any specific those as we go through the plot, like point them out. If you're like, yeah, like you can oh, tell sure. like, this is a woman doing this. I would, lo- I would love to get y'all's insight on that. I would love to because uh, I feel like a lot of the body language in this movie is also very. This will also sound a little off, I think, for me, but I feel like the body language in this movie is also very important between a lot of the different characters, between their relationships, like their body language, like the way you see them act towards each other, I think is also very interesting and very important. I feel like really only like someone with a feminine presentation could really, could really pay so much attention to that and make it such an important thing on each character, like their body language and how they act towards each other with body language. Like, I think that's such an underrated aspect to this movie that I feel like so many people just seem to either ignore or don't notice on their first time viewing. Hmm. All right. Well, I'm interested to hear more as we go. (laughs) Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So after he has fed, it's important to note that he almost immediately recovers. Like he looks like good old Adrian Pazdar again, and he looks happy and satisfied. And once again, we're back to kissing. So again, just the transformation between, oh, I need blood and I'm really fucked up to, oh, I've got blood and now I'm completely fine and able to make out with someone. Now I literally don't look like a ghost walking around. Like Mm -hmm. my skin isn't like literally pale white like Mm -hmm. oh my goodness yeah not helping with the twilight comparisons right i mean (laughs) that was the funniest thing about that box art is it makes (laughs) it made him look like he was a ghost but when you see him in the movie and he needs to feed he does kind of look pale but you know he also kind of looks like robert pattinson he has the same like skull structure yeah i could see that really looking at it now like especially after just watching it before for before this like recording this podcast i'm like oh now i can really see it in my brain that's Mm -hmm. that's actually a really great comparison uh, see, Pattinson would never do it because, of course, he's now making prestige either uh, <laughs> art house films or big ass blockbusters. But I would love to see Pattinson do a near dark remake where he gets to play this character. Oh, yeah, I'd be interested to see how they'd handle it. And, you know, they were actually going to do a remake. I think it was Platinum Dunes at the time when Twilight mm-hmm. came out. They were like, oh, oh wow. we can capitalize on that and do a remake of uh of near dark um but it it fell through nevertheless (laughs) yeah it was basically like oh no somebody else has already done that and we're not going to be able to do it better Pretty much, yeah. So uh let's jump back to Loy and Sarah because we've been missing the um question mark. They (laughs) go to the police in the morning and they leave completely dissatisfied because nothing has been accomplished and they don't feel like they're being taken seriously. So they embark on the search themselves. So we see them handing up flyers, asking people at gas stations and so on. So that's all good. That's what they're doing. But it also means that they're not in the house when Caleb calls that night because they're on the road and he gets all despondent. He's missing his family and May uses this as an opportunity to reconnect with him because she hasn't been a vampire that long either. So she's like, yeah, it was my experience too. You gotta leave that behind. Let's go murder people. 
So this is kind of what we do. We get a couple of vignettes as we see each of the members of the vampire family go out. They they sort of strike out on their own so that they can be more successful. And Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting that they all weaponize driving or vehicles as their mode of getting blood. So Homer fakes an injury on a bicycle so that he can get a passing motorist. Uh, Severin hitches a ride with a couple of girls. And then obviously Diamondback and Jesse... Well, they they put themselves in a position where they pick up a hitchhiker who then tries to threaten them, and all indications point that they eat this person and his friends for lunch. Ba- back in the days when hitchhiking was fine, huh? Yeah, oh, yeah God. of course. Well, it is very funny that it's a through line between the script for the hitcher and this. It's like, basically, just don't hitchhike. Yeah. Apparently, too, uh, one of the ways, I mean, this is, okay, this is IMDb trivia, so, like, bear with me, but I think it also might have come from Catherine Bigelow's commentary on that DVD, but one of the ways Lance Hemrickson prepared for his role was to drive cross-country, and he actually picked up a few hitchhikers. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely not. It's a hard no for me. Hard no. Especially when one of the the situation with with Jesse and Diamondback is they do pick up a hitchhiker who does try to kill them. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh, a little bit freaky. So the the roles are reversed when Caleb and May end up hitching and getting picked up by a semi-driver. And Caleb is supposed to kill this dude. He absolutely cannot. So May ends up having to do it. Also, Chekhov's How to Break an 18-Wheeler. <laughs> Otherwise, it's going to jackknife. <laughs> yeah. Uh, people got to learn how to do driving ed a little bit better. <laughs> So, yeah, this is the scene where she feeds him in front of the pistons and it's like, hey, in case you didn't get it, they're basically having sex, except that she's just feeding him blood. But this is also where he tries to overdo it and she gets mad at him. And I actually thought the first time I saw the film that this was a pivot point, that he was going to embrace the vampire lifestyle. He was going to become more ruthless than her. And... This is it. This is the closest we get to him saying, oh, this is a lifestyle for me. And he never comes back from this. Like he realizes, oh, this isn't a good fit for me. Mm -hmm. So that becomes a problem when they're on a train car, all of the vampires together. And they're like, dude, you need to kill someone. You need to kill someone tonight or else we're going to kill you and get rid of you. So we get an absolutely gorgeous shot of them standing at the top of a ridge with fog and the moonlight behind them. It's très très iconique. And uh, then they head down. They head down the bluff to this dive bar, which, P.S., I would totally get a drink at. Um, okay, dive bars are awesome. Oh, I love like, a fucking uh, obviously, dive bar. I met my husband at a dive bar. <laughs> I mean, it was a gay dive bar, but it was a dive bar. <laughs> I mean, most gay bars are dive bars, if we're being honest. Also, does Caleb have eyeliner now? Probably. He's a vampire. I swear, as soon as he walked into this bar, I was like, I'm pretty sure this guy's wearing eyeliner right now. (laughs) (laughs) He got a makeover. It's appropriate. Yeah. So we go into this dive bar, and this is a big set piece for this film. I think this is probably one of the things that people remember the most from this movie. So Severin really starts to take over, and this is where Bill Paxton really starts to shine in this role. And we mentioned earlier, he's the most obviously queer-coded of these characters, and I read this as tantamount to a first-date kind of queer mentorship, where he's either interested in Caleb and he wants to see how he performs, or he's (laughs) guiding him like, hey, let me show you what the life is like. This is how we do things. So... Basically, that involves 
getting Caleb into a bar fight. <laughs> See, I mean, I guess I kind of get what you're saying, but it, it, yeah, he, he is antagonizing him it, in the in the interest of making mm-hmm. Caleb kill someone, like yes. getting him angry enough that he will hurt someone and kill them. But it's like it's all a facade. Like he's doing it like to like he's not helping him. He's helping him through cruelty. Yeah, because he's an asshole. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I remember the first time I saw this, I thought, well, this is weird. They're doing all of these performative displays of violence, but they don't really seem to be capitalizing on it, right? Like, they barely drink anybody's blood. They just seem to be killing people to kill them. And then I realized they don't actually care about any of this shit. It's all just to get Caleb to kill someone. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. So, um, yeah, so we get this bar fight. Diamondback kills the waitress by slitting her throat so that Jesse can put a glass under her neck and drink oh, the blood. I, 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 okay, I, 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 will, I will confess, I didn't think they were going to kill everyone in this bar when I watched this. Mm. Even even when he said, I just want the glass. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so bad for this waitress. That sucks for her. Yeah. Yeah, she's getting sexually assaulted and then she gets murdered. <laughs> So Jesse locks the door, and that's when you know, oh, it's on. Nobody's getting out of here alive. Mm-hmm. And so, Except James LaGrosse. <laughs> James LaGrosse, yep. So Severin ends up killing and drinking from this biker. That's where we get the line, I hate it when they ain't been shaved. A lot of people interpret that as... Like queer? Yeah, another kind of queer derivation. But most people prefer the line, finger looking good. I love that line. Oh my god, that's Bill Paxton just taking it up. Where like what 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 where does the queerness come from from the uh the shaving line like just just because he's eating another man? Yeah, like he prefers to neck on men who have been shaved as opposed to the unshaved. <laughs> that could be a, a screenshot of a grinder convo. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So while all of this is happening, the bartender thinks that he's being very sly and is loading a shotgun. Caleb ends up getting shot in the gut, but of course it doesn't kill him. But Severn uses this as an opportunity to literally strut his shit on the bar like it's coyote motherfucking ugly. (laughs) And then he just slices this man's throat open with his spur. Oh. And it's amazing. This was awesome. I I cheered at this. Hell yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's bad, right? Like, we're not supposed to like all of this wanton violence. And yet, I think that Catherine Bigelow shoots it so fucking well. Like, we have a complete understanding of where everybody is in the bar. It's exciting. It's interesting. And yeah, like, these vampires are... I don't know. I root for them, even though I know they're very bad people. But it's a thing where it's like, I mean, y'all are, again, rightfully praising and complimenting, like, how Bigelow and Red are, you know, mixing genres, subverting genre tropes. And I'm over here like, he used a spur as a weapon. Also, the practical (laughs) effects looks really good. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so um, Homer also gets in on this action, although arguably because he's a child, he maybe is less adept at doing some of this. So he just uses a gun and shoots another patron who's played by Robert Winley multiple times. And of course, folks who have seen Terminator 2 will know that this is the same actor who Arnold throws out the window and steals his clothes in the opening of that film. Woo! Clearly you have not seen Terminator 2. I have I have seen Terminator 2. Oh my god! <laughs> Not seen Terminator 2. Oh my god. I have seen Terminator. (laughs) Although I will say it's probably been at least 10 years since I've seen Terminator 1. Mm. But I've seen I've seen all the I've seen all the Terminators. (laughs) Oh boy. That is a rough ride in some Mm -hmm. parts. Yeah, it is. 
<sighs> yes, so our final patron left alive is Teenage Cowboy, who, as you mentioned, Trace is played by James LaGrosse. He would go on to star in just a ton of shit. I was like, who is this babyface child? He's like, I, 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 I was like, is he considered a character actor? Because I was looking at all this stuff and I was like, I can't, I couldn't pinpoint one thing where I was like, oh, that, that's what I know him from. That, mm-hmm. That's what it was actually Alan McBeal. That's what I knew him from. <laughs> Yeah, I looked at the credits and I thought, I've seen almost everything that he has apparently been in. But, you know, you never get a sense of, is it an episode? Is it a couple of episode arc? Is it a bit role in the back of a police precinct kind of thing? So I recognize the face, but I couldn't tell you what any of these roles were. I feel like I always used to get confused with Walton Goggins, but Walton Goggins has much bigger... dare you? I thought... Uh, that's not a bad comparison that's a good comparison uh walton goggins <laughs> is magnificent and you should immediately be able to recognize him well, <laughs> so, <laughs> before i watched the walton goggins cbs show uh the unicorn oh my god get the fuck out of town go watch justified <laughs> and come back and talk to me oh okay, that that makes so yeah i didn't watch justified not even do that yeah. i heard it's oh, good yeah, though everybody watches the unicorn oh my god <laughs> no I, I, that was the joke <laughs> That's not a joke. I know you too well. That's just you being like, I like comedies. No, 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 no. I, I, I never come onto the show expecting anyone to watch any show that is on CBS, unless it's evil. Oh, yeah. Sidebar. Everybody go watch fucking evil. It's great. Oh, also sidebar, though. Go watch Ghosts on CBS. Also really good show. True. More of a comedy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So Caleb is left to deal with this teenage cowboy who he lets escape. In multiple ways, he lets him escape the bar and then he lets him go out in the field. And Ooh, don't you love a dive through a window, too? Yeah, I, I do love because I feel like it's very relatable. You know, if you are the last person left alive at the dive bar when the vampires attack, just throw yourself out the window. It's probably going to be a better fate. Yeah. So the others stay behind to burn the bar, and then they get really fucking mad at Caleb when they realize that he has let the teenage cowboy go, but the sun is rising, so they can't really do anything about it. I do love these shots of them driving like it's the fucking Dukes of Hazard. How are they staying on the road when they're doing these driving scenes? They're good drivers, Joe. I guess so. I mean, they've had <laughs> hundreds of years to practice at their driving, so... So they end up having to steal a van. They uh, wait, 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 wait. They had hundreds of years to practice driving cars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When they started with horses, and then when cars came in, when the Model T came in, then they really refined it. I think they started early in Europe, right? Isn't that? A I don't thing? know. Do not ask me when the car was invented. <laughs> no, it's very much the 20th century. So the sun is rising, they steal a van, they find a place to hide, and they decide to go to this shitty looking motel. And unfortunately, the police arrive in the middle of the day because in fact, they were right, Teenage Cowboy did go to the police and they find him. So this is the second major set piece of this movie. Lots of slow-mo going on in these scenes Mm -hmm. as we are shooting out the walls of this paper-thin motel. And I love the way that the rays of sun come through and shine on people and just immediately burn them up like they are marshmallows over a fire. It's a nice gradual process. I like that it's not just, I mean, as we will see as the uh, at the end of the film <laughs> when yeah. someone burns up. Yeah, I, I love, I love that. And I mean, again, like narratively speaking, we have at least this is Caleb earning his way back into their favor after they mm-hmm. were for sure going to kill him. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. And I feel like this particular moment of the movie, like this shootout, is like one of the most Catherine Bigelow things about this movie. Like this intricate, like intricately shot action moment mm-hmm. of just constant gunfire and like those the walls just being shot through. Like this felt very much like Catherine Bigelow and her craft. Like this was so excellent. This might actually be my favorite moment in the movie. As hmm. weird as that sounds, because I, I, I earlier I compared this movie to Art House, but like this is just so well shot. Just mm-hmm. such a great sequence. Interesting. I mean, going bigger picture here with Bigelow her filmography and like the types of films she chooses to do. I mean, outside of just generally liking whatever genre she wants to do, I wonder if do you think it's maybe intentional her part to do to pick films that are considered like men's genres like action like western like all that stuff i actually kind of do but that's also i think i said this a little earlier and if i haven't i apologize but uh that's also i feel like like kind of bringing the whole thing of gender and really playing with gender dynamics is just Mm -hmm. like like now here's a real life gender dynamic of a woman as a director really playing around with gender dynamics and genres that aren't typically known for I guess either having feminine people as their audience even though I don't agree with that I'm sure there I know there are plenty of like feminine and female and women people uh, who are fans of like action and those oh, sort of, of genres, yeah. but it's just like I, I feel like even that itself is a real life gender dynamic, playing with gender dynamics of just of a woman making a film with uh, action and jo- genres of action, western and horror, and really playing with all of those aspects too. I, I think that's just a great real life example of that of playing with gender dynamics, and that's what also hooked me to this movie, and that's what keeps me interested in this movie as well. And it is interesting, right? I mean, just going back to just sexism in Hollywood in general, where it's like, you know, okay, oh, like, yeah, it's Catherine Bigelow, a woman doing these man films. But how long have we been seeing men direct, quote unquote, women films, right? Yeah, that's a good point. I just written back and rewatched My Best Friend's Wedding, which is directed by PJ Hogan, but like, I mean, he might be gay for all I know, but nevertheless, like, I mean, he got his start doing like Muriel's Wedding and then like, mm-hmm. doing rom-coms. So it's like, yeah. we all, we we have plenty of men doing quote unquote women genres, which again, I'm not yeah. trying to say rom-coms are for women, but it's just interesting to me. Like, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I've never done a deep enough dive into like interviews or audio commentaries from Bigelow, but I've always assumed that she was at least interested in bringing her perspective to traditionally male-dominated genres uh, to the point where, as I was thinking about today's episode, I was like, wow, she's kind of a real-life final girl where, you know, she she has to pick up the masculine weapon to deliver the killing blow in a way, right? Like, only in this case, she picks up a camera and she's like, fuck you, I'm doing a western. <laughs> fuck you, I'm doing a horror film. I am filming this shit, we're doing it. And yeah. By the way, folks, uh, for all those who can acquire the DVD or you know that out of print blu-ray or hopefully if this 4k thing comes to fruition please uh listen to the audio commentary by Catherine bigelow there's a lot of really great information in it i was mm-hmm. lucky enough to get a copy my, myself through uh my local library and ah. yeah just a wonderful commentary coming for the libraries joe's a big library head uh, i'm yes. a huge fan folks if you take anything 
from me guest starring in this episode, please go support your local libraries. Please go support them. They need your help, and they are one of the few good, honest, pure, decent things in today's society. Of just, <laughs> they're for libraries are for everyone, and they're there to help you. Go support them. I think because whenever, whenever I'm searching like for films that are like, where are they streaming? Where are they streaming? Hoopla always comes up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Hoop, Hoopla is a streaming service that is free yep. if you have a library card. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> or even go in person and just ask. And if they don't have it, they will get it for you. Just mm-hmm. ask. And just that's the only thing you got to do. Just ask. There you go. Yeah. So we, we are going through this shootout. People are getting burned. Police are all over the place, and yeah, this is when Caleb makes his move. He ends up running to the van in slow-mo. He gets shot maybe a billion times. While also out in the, in the sun, just in yes. that rays of the sun, just getting toasty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is fully on fire by the time he actually gets inside. He manages to drive the van fully into the motel room. So everybody piles in, they drive out the other side, narrowly avoiding the police cruiser and then they drive off so they are basically getting away with it and he is the man of the hour to the point that severin gives him his spur again a lot of people read the queer coding in this like oh you know he does a good thing severin's like here have something precious of mine i thought you just said gives him his fur and i was <laughs> like i don't remember that <laughs> oh, damn. Whoa. which would have maybe been a bit more gay too yeah maybe maybe yeah <laughs> Also, I can't hear Spur without thinking of that one damn song in Fallout. I think it's uh, Fallout 3 or New Vegas. I've got spurs that go jingle jangle. jingle. (laughs) (laughs) Listening to Joe try to pretend like he knows what Fallout is. Yeah, I have no idea. (laughs) I just think it's funny. The song sounds funny. The inner gaming nerd of me is just like, oh my god, I'm so sorry. Everybody's got to have a vice. We all have a blind spot. Yeah. Of course. Yes. No, of course. So that night they swap vehicles because they're nothing if not very smart about how they handle. I mean, basically, they understand that if people see them and they associate them with violence, they need to get rid of whatever vehicle they're tied to because they're going to be easy to track. So they swap vehicles. They end up taking up residence at a new motel, which is the Godspeed Motel. And this is where Caleb is forgiven by the group. And he uses the opportunity to get into Jesse's goodwill by asking him his backstory. And this is where Jesse makes a reference to fighting in the Civil War for the South. And folks, if you'll bear with me, I have a rather long quote from Tammy Oler called Sunlight Through Bullet Holes for Slate. And this is drawing back to the reference to class that I had earlier. So this is what Tammy says. When near dark hit theaters, American politics, media and pop culture were preoccupied with demonizing urban poverty. Conservative politicians raised the specter of welfare queens and crack babies to point to the decline of urban families. Media overrepresented Black Americans in depictions of poverty. Films ranging from Lean on Me to Robocop to Colors portrayed inner cities as dangerous, gang-ridden hells. All of this exploited and contributed to the fears that poor people of color in urban cities were leeching off hard-working, tax-paying whites in middle America— 
But near dark, imagine that America's real vampires were poor southern whites who saw themselves on the losing side of American history. Near Dark tapped into those below-the-surface fears that poverty and decline could harm whites in middle America, and that the infected are all the more monstrous because they don't look like what you'd expect. So basically all this to say that, like, white people are always the problem. No, I'm kidding. Um, So basically, (laughs) this is all to say that it's, like, this is really tapping into those sort of Reagan-era perspectives where we said, well, what's what's causing economic collapse, the disintegration of the nuclear family? Like, what are all of our problems stemming from? And we love to blame marginalized people and specifically people of color. And the reality is, is like movies like Near Dark say, oh, well, I mean, poverty is definitely the issue, but it's not so much black people. Of course. Yeah, and and that's going back to earlier about you know, like take, taking those t- the standard tropes from the Western genre and being like, hey, maybe we don't have people of color or like people indigenous folks like be, be the uh, the evil villains of this film. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the issue lies because Slate doesn't really negotiate too too much with this, but if mm-hmm. you then swap it that these aren't poor white Southerners, these are actually queer people or people who are infected with HIV, then all of a sudden the metaphor starts to get a little bit confusing or maybe demonizing the queer community. I mean, and we'll talk about it when we get to the end of the film, but this is a chosen family that our protagonist rejects and Mm -hmm. says, I don't want your chosen family. I want my birth family. Yeah. And I want my heteronormative relationship that gets magically uh, (laughs) resuscitated. I I am still confused by the science behind that with this in his barn. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that at least it was an end answer and they didn't just end it off on just a bunch of like, right. Oh, well, what will happen? Like fair and even still, I mean, like, I mean, I know we're ahead here, but like, you know, we have the scene where he's like in the car and his dad wants to take him to the hospital. He's like, don't take me to the hospital. Like mm-hmm. that can be read as like, put in your AIDS allegory there. So then they're yeah. doing these like, or, or, I mean, if you really want to go there, like uh, just any kind of medical procedure where it's like, I can't do that. So, or maybe it's not legal. So I'm going to get back alley abortions that could mm-hmm. possibly hurt me. Yeah. I mean, really the, the vampires in this movie are good stand-ins for the other But unfortunately, because it's the 1980s and this is a big budget-esque studio Hollywood film, we can't let them succeed and we have to, basically we have to destroy them by the end of the movie. Yep. But we're not there yet. So this is where Homer brings Caleb's sister, Sarah, because she is just at the same motel, as we said, 2 a.m., buying a soda. So he sees a kindred spirit in her because she is around his quote-unquote same age so he brings her back to the room everybody is like uh what the shit is this little girl doing here so severin goes to collect loy because obviously we can't have a little girl off by herself for too long this is when caleb recognizes oh shit this is my family so now my two families have met oh no my two dads (laughs) so things are not looking good for the humans because they are clearly going to be eaten and then killed and that's when sarah breaks for the door and uh a little plot contrivance, but sure, it's now daylight, so Caleb and yes. his family <laughs> escape miraculously. And yes, this is where on the ride home, Caleb refuses to go to the hospital. And that is, if people don't know their AIDS history, this was a huge issue where people with HIV or AIDS were turned away from hospitals for fear of contamination, or people who had symptoms and they were afraid of what it meant if they went in because they were afraid that if they went to the hospital that they would never come out. 
Ooh, and yeah, actually, I'll, I'll pull this from that John DeVore article, too, um, just to paint this picture of 1987. He says in 1987, the U.S. refused to admit HIV-infected immigrants and tourists. Uh, in Florida, arsonists torched the home of a family with three HIV-positive sons Jesus. with hemophilia who contracted the virus through blood transfusions. Mm-hmm. After years of ignoring deaths of the, of the deaths of thousands of Americans, uh, Ronald Reagan begrudgingly gave his first speech addressing AIDS. Liberace died, first said it was a heart attack, but then an autopsy found it was complications of AIDS. And then uh, this is also the same year that Princess Diana stirred up controversy by shaking hands with touching an HIV-positive patient, which people did not like that. This is basically the, the height of the AIDS epidemic, not in terms of what the disease was actually doing. But like public awareness? Yeah, basically this is when people realized it was a thing and they were vulnerable and all of a sudden it was very much keep those people away from me because i don't want to get it and when you take into account that i mean again this film does the whole virusy approach Mm -hmm. with the vampire blood we do get a blood transfusion eventually oh that's where we're at right now yeah yeah i I, I mean the the aids allegory is much easier to read here and back up than i don't know what's another movie we did where someone was like "Eh, it's not really like I don't know, any, any movie where we say there's an AIDS allegory. <laughs> the only thing I can think of that has that much of an AIDS allegory to it that's, like, that prevalent and that noticeable is probably The Fly. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, The Fly. Well, but and the, the, the difference between the two films, though, is, like, The Fly is, like, okay, he is deteriorating physically and mentally because of this disease. Whereas in mm. this one, in the, in the vampire sexy version of AIDS allegory... Um, it just means, hey, I'm going to die eventually. So or I guess I'm not going to die eventually unless I enter the sunlight. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, have fun. Well, sort of. I don't know that this movie really glamorizes the vampire lifestyle. At least, like, I, I look at this film and then I look at The Lost Boys three months earlier. And that movie is basically become a vampire, score chicks or dudes, and just, like, live forever and party, man. And this movie is basically become a vampire, drive a shitty RV or a stolen car, and try to stay out of daylight. So, yes, we get a blood transfusion, and thankfully it works because Sarah just throws open the fucking barn door the next day, and he is slathered in beautiful daylight, but it doesn't kill him, so good thing for her because she would have had a crispy brother so the next night that's when may shows up and she discovers that caleb is cured so she runs off and it's interesting some people read this as a ruse like she was there to distract caleb while they grab sarah i've always Mm -hmm. just read it as she was there and the others were maybe nabbing sarah but i don't get a sense that she was there as part of the plot Ooh, what are your thoughts on that, Kyle? Because I I actually did think she was there to distract him. Hmm. I didn't think it was a ruse. I thought she was just there to see him because I feel like uh, with May, I, I don't know. I feel like she did have some genuine interest in in Caleb as a as a person, and like even with her her lifestyle as in just being a vampire, she still had some feelings for him. Because like she clearly still wants to be with him. Otherwise, she wouldn't make all these sacrifices later on. But I guess, I mean, we definitely see that she is doing things at the behest of Jesse and Diamondback and Severin. So it it could go either way. Interesting, because uh, the one thing that I couldn't fully gather with with at least with May, because she's been a vampire for I want to say they said four years is when Homer turned her. It's a short time. It is a short time, but nevertheless, she's been with these people for mm-hmm. four years in their little ragtag group of misfits. Yes. And she is ready, by the end of this movie, to give everything up for Caleb. 
And it's never outside of just here's your man. There you go. It's never really the film never really justifies why she's willing to do this. I I don't really think it's that important to the plot. That's just like that is just the narrative we're going with here. I guess. But it also doesn't really do a good enough job of showing her liking the people she's (laughs) with either. Like I, I really don't know how May feels about a lot of things. She's a very interior minded character. And again, I don't know how I said earlier, I don't want to blame Jenny Wright because I I think it's kind of how the character is written. But yeah, we just don't know a lot about how May feels about anything except that she likes Caleb and apparently more than she likes her vampire family. But I think it's a problem that we ask these questions because to me it tells us that we don't believe enough in their romance to see that she would say like, oh, I'm willing to give everything up because I've met this boy that I want to spend the rest of my life with or whatever. Like, if they had better chemistry, maybe we wouldn't ask the questions. We'd just be like, yeah, obviously. Well, and, and yeah, that's kind of where the opening, because that's why the opening is so long, right? We have like 15 minutes of just mm-hmm. Caleb and May as they're on their date of sorts. But at the same time, there's not really anything in that scene where I'm like, well, why didn't you just kill him? Because right. that is what she was going to do. A hundred percent. What what was it about him, be it his personality or was there a specific action he did that made her say, no, never mind. Or was it just that fun? I don't know. Or maybe it was a vibe. He's just such an asshole and he doesn't listen to me when I tell him to take me home. <laughs> I want to be with him forever. I feel like it must have been a vibe. Just yeah. It must have been a vibe he was given off that she, it must have really like really gotten to her well and that's what this movie is right this movie is a big vibe and so it's i'm not even critiquing that aspect of it because it's just like it's kind of par for the course with like movie romances right and like since this isn't a romance first and foremost i'm willing to forgive it that whereas if this was a romance first and foremost Mm. i'd be more critical of that aspect (laughs) you're like i'm gonna need a bit more believable chemistry yeah a little bit So Sarah is missing. I mean, it's the reason why Caleb came out in the first place, but uh, he notices that his tires are slashed. So he ends up taking off on horseback as a storm builds and he ends up getting into town. And I will give a shout out again, because I think it's a beautifully composed shot of him just in the middle of this city street on a horseback as the storm is going on. I'm just like, ah. Pretty. But something spooks the horse. Yeah, we've got Severin waiting to face him down. It's uh, your boyfriend's back and you're going to be sorry because... <laughs> yeah, I do like the fact that Caleb absolutely understands he cannot fight Severin and win on his own. So he just tries to get out of there by hopping into a semi that is passing by because this movie likes to flag down semis and then do terrible things to the drivers. So this driver is immediately shot. And that's when Caleb takes the wheel. He tries to run down Severin. This does not work. And (laughs) Caleb ultimately ends up having to blow Severin up when the vehicle explodes after a sort of protracted driving slash fun action scene. Well, because he jackknifes it because he knows how to make a jackknife since they killed that trucker earlier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he passed his driver's head test second go yeah! around. Although, although technically you would probably fail it if you jackknifed your head wheel. This is true, yeah. Don't try it at home. I don't think he'd want to do that. <laughs> no. I mean movie fun, not real life fun. Yeah, movie fun. <laughs> yeah, So uh, it should be noted that Caleb now has both spurs because that is all that is left of Severin. Yeah, I, 
Do y'all like this death for Severin? I do wish she had like a because all, all all of these vampires. Do you want to quip? Is that what you want? No, <laughs> no. I just because all the vampires die from burning. Granted, mm. he gets the one explosion where it's like like the the, the thing explodes and whatever. But I wanted like I don't know. I wanted like him. I wanted a death for this character. Yeah, I guess they all do kind of die the same way, but. I feel like it's the movie saying these motherfuckers are nearly impossible to kill. You've got to do yeah. it with a big fiery explosion. For sure. For and and that's that's the slasher lover me coming out, right? Where I'm right. like, no, rip him apart, decapitate him. <laughs> Give me something different, a little bit visually different each time. Yeah. So Severin is out, and that leaves us with Jesse and Diamondback and Homer. So we have Jesse trying to distract Caleb using Sarah, so he's luring him in. And meanwhile, Diamondback is sneaking up to line up a knife throw. I will say, I forgot about this until this rewatch, and I fucking loved watching, Mm -hmm. I mean... Sarah saves the day by getting Caleb out of the way, and (laughs) Jesse ends up taking this knife in the mouth, and then he pulls it out, and it looks so painful, and he just spits out a mouthful of blood. It's great. Yeah. It's really good. I had to rewind this the first time because I didn't see the throw, so when he pulled the knife out, I was like, wait, (laughs) what just happened? (laughs) He's a knife thrower. He's got knives in there all all the time. That is awesome. It's really, really cool. Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) So Caleb ends up grabbing uh, Sarah and they make a run for it as the vampires chase them by car. Once again, uh, plot contrivance, the sun is coming back up. <laughs> it's a very short night. It's, but we're, oh, I was going to make a joke about the title, but it's not near dark. It's near sun. So never mind. Right. <laughs> uh, I mean, this this movie delights in spending time around the rising of the sun, but also really the the arrival of darkness. So you're forgetting. Mm-hmm. And yeah. getting those beautiful, beautiful uh, shots of the mm-hmm. early mornings and dusks and dawns of the American desert. Which yeah. uh, one of my other favorite things in movies just in general is uh, if your movie's set in the West or set in the desert or whatever, it's getting that dusk or dawn shot of the sun rising up. I just, ah, mm-hmm. that wins my heart. That wins my heart every single time. <laughs> okay, where are we at? So yes, yeah, so we are on the run and I don't love that Sarah just immediately gets abducted again, but uh, she's back in the car with them. <laughs> And this is where May realizes that she can't sit by and let Homer turn this girl. So she throws both her and the girl out of the car. It is now firmly daylight. So they are in grave, grave danger. Um, We see Homer chasing after Sarah and May as they're running down the highway back towards Caleb. And everybody is getting some good smoking action on at this point. So normally for all of these smoking things, like the actors would have devices on them that mm-hmm. would like fog out for them. But this was too windy. And so they had to add and you can see it like I mean, I, I think it looks pretty good for what it is. Yeah. But like they, they had to um, add smoke and flame optically, like overlay it over the film itself. Oh, interesting. I do feel like it's noticeable in a way that it isn't in the other scenes of the film but yeah i i kind of like it it looks very cool mm-hmm. <laughs> even though it's not really this little boy on fire <laughs> it, it does look really impressive yeah i i think especially because again we're using slow motion uh there's just something really visually interesting about the starkness of this landscape just stretching out forever the sun slowly coming up and then seeing these characters just go up in absolute flames because homer 
I mean, spoiler blows alert. up. Yeah, like fully <laughs> fucking blows up at this point. And you know, I know it's not actually a child character, mm-hmm. but th- this was still something where I was like, "Ooh, I'm surprised we're showing this child blow up." Mm-hmm. Catherine Bigelow says, "Fuck them kids." <laughs> Well, again, I don't want to keep going back to this well of comparing this film to The Lost Boys, but we've got a child vampire in that movie as well, and no harm comes to that child. Ooh, but that's the thing, right? Like I said in that episode, I love Jamie Gertz. She has given Jack shit to do in that movie, Mm -hmm. except for... Oh, I got to take care of uh, Lonnie or whatever the fuck that kid's oh name my God, is. Lonnie, yes. And, and the funny thing is, though, because Homer and Diamondback have a similar relationship. The yes. reason Diamondback turned Homer is because she wanted someone to cuddle for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. But it's not done. Like, like, like Homer is still self-sustainable. Like he can go off and do his own things if he yes. wants to. Like, but Lottie constantly just in, in, in Star's arms. Yep. So boring. Boring, boring, boring. <laughs> Ew, motherhood. Boring. Gross. Sick. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now Homer is done, and this is when Jesse and Diamondback basically make a suicide pact. So they are going to try to mow down Caleb and Sarah and May in the middle of the street, despite the fact that they too are now basically on fire and they make it part of the way there, but not before they too go kabloomy. I actually really, it's just the shot of the car drifting off mm-hmm. the road into the ditch as it just, yeah. like, there's something very tragic because yeah, they are villainous characters, but I do like mm-hmm. Jesse and Diamondback in this movie and oh, it's sure. just like, Oh, man, it sucks. That, 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 what a way to go out. I think it has something to do with just also really inspired casting, right? Like, I think it's it's really easy for us to dismiss how vital a relationship we have developed with certain characters. I don't know what it was like back in 1987 to see this mm-hmm. movie, if you didn't maybe know who these actors were, but... I have so much goodwill towards them from other projects that I'm just immediately interested in Diamondback and Jesse. And this feels like such and in some way I'm like, oh, God, you went out because of stupid Caleb and May. But (laughs) at the same time, I think it's such a great exit. It feels appropriately grandiose and also kind of tragic. Mm-hmm. So they did, and then, I mean, the movie's basically over because we get May waking up in this barn. She, too, has had this transfusion. She's human again, we know, because <laughs> Caleb opens the door and she is bathed in sunlight and doesn't blow up. So, yay! Everybody is good. They hug, and heterosexuality wins. Does the dad... It's because Doesn't he transfuse his blood? He definitely does that for Caleb. Okay, so... <sighs> Transfuse doesn't that mean that he's just swapping the blood out? So isn't he getting Caleb's blood? I think what he's doing is he's donating blood and then he drains blood out of the vampires and then puts his own in. Got it. That I mean, makes sense. Okay. Well. It is not explained. The movie does not actually care to talk about the science or the practicalities. And that's actually another thing in the liner notes is they know that people criticize the movie for this plot point and that people think it's a bit of a cop out. And they say, well, we never talked about the rules of vampirism. Yeah. Sp- 
specifically. So we're allowed to do whatever the fuck we want. I'm less concerned. I'm less griping with the fact that they can use a blood transfusion to cure them and more so how this man with a barn has mm-hmm. the wherewithal and skill and knowledge to do a. I guess he does it to his cows, maybe? Duh, he's a <laughs> yeah, vet. I was going to say, like, I'm pretty sure he's done this with animals, so. Mm-hmm. It's just like, I don't know the, how many vets are actively doing blood transfusions on their <laughs> patients, but. I will, and y'all probably know this too, but the original, like, they, there was an ending originally talked about or discussed where. Caleb and May see Sarah walking down the road and notice the skin on her arm was smoking in the sunlight, but they abandoned that quickly. Ugh, no thank you. I mean, is there another ending to this movie that y'all would have preferred to see outside of all the other vampires are dead and Caleb and May live happily ever after? Honestly, no. I don't know, as contrived as the... May, the, the main ending may sound I'm, I'm happy with the way it ended yeah I think as much as I poo poo it mostly just because I don't really care about the romance this ending makes perfectly logical sense and if you tried to end it on an unhappy note audiences are going to rebel this is already a hard sell so if you're focusing from a studio perspective on how can we make a movie that is going to do okay and please audiences hopefully make some money you're going to say put the lovers front and central and give them a happy ending Yeah. as a horror fan I think we all sort of graded this and are like it's too easy and also, I don't like these characters as much as the ones that blew up. But at the same time, it's a it's a really fast 95 minute runtime. Oh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. like, I, I appreciate that the movie's like, we're done. <laughs> yeah, credits, we're done. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that is near dark, y'all. But what are y'all's final thoughts? Or is there anything else you want to discuss about the film? There's not too much I could really say that's a little different from my earlier comments from my final thoughts I just yeah I really love this movie for all that it's worth I think Catherine Bigelow did a just an excellent job especially with what she had to work with I think there's a lot of great performances from a lot of the different actors I think even for the kid actor as Homer I think he does a pretty solid job for what he's given like for a kid to understand all of what's going on and still give that solid of performance I think that's pretty damn good I think Bill Paxton is just fantastic in this role and easily one of my very favorite performances from him rest in peace good sir but uh I think he left behind a just a damn great legacy with this specific role and Lance Henriksen's great I yeah I think I'll just pretty much all the performances are just stand out and really great and just well done I love a lot of the cinematography to this movie I'm weird where I'm actually not that much of a big fan of westerns, but Mm -hmm. I love the setting of a western. I love the American West. I love the West Coast. I I love that desert look. I I love of, and like I said er, earlier, the two of like winning my heart, but I'm such a sucker for like seeing a sunrise or a sunset through the American West or the American desert. Just give me like a sunset or a sunrise in that setting and just like just my heart's a flutter i i i'm just i'm in love i i just i love that setting i love that view i love the colors the 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 brightness of the sun the colors of the sun the pink the purple the the oranges and just all the hues and yeah like i'm such a sucker for all of those settings around a western but i don't actually like westerns but (laughs) yeah i love this movie i think it's really impressive for all that it did i can honestly see why it did fail though it just this movie was too not different but just too 
I, I think from a lot of what people were expecting, it's, it's, well, actually, you know what? It is too different. It is just too different. I think for its time, uh, it was a little too different. And I feel like there were audience members who did get it and love it. Like a lot of the critics and critical mm-hmm. reviews, especially at the time, were like, oh, no, this movie's like excellent. It, it, it's, it's really solid and just a solid debut. I just, I, I think for a lot of mainstream audiences, I, I feel like this is a movie that if you watch just once, you may be left a little in the cold and you're like, oh, well, I, I don't get what's so great. Like the characters didn't seem that interesting and it wasn't like, yeah, badass vampires. They're so cool. It's just like, oh yeah, being a vampire in this lifestyle it would really fucking suck because you're wearing ratty ass clothes and, you know, like nothing's open during the night <laughs> and you, you got no options and the only thing you're going to do is, yeah, you're going to go try to find victims to suck blood from because that's what you have to do. But yeah, I, I, I just, I think this movie's really damn impressive and really important for horror and his- horror history and, uh, and and the line of vampire movies and it, it just in general as like a western movie and a horror movie I think this movie is very important and it's such a unique film uh, I mean I, I, I know I've probably been gushing a little bit uh, a little bit for Catherine Bigelow but I just I feel like no one else could have gotten this movie down to its perfect tone than Catherine Bigelow or just any male director like I'm not trying to dunk on like males but I mean I am male myself but like <laughs> I, I just feel like no one else could have hit, just nailed the tone of this movie perfectly than a woman and a woman who was so precise in her own craft she just nailed the tone of this movie perfectly and I love it just deep in the midnight hour of you're running with your bandits a bandit of just random people in your life you're trying to get cars and your that setting is just excellent well i I don't have much to add to that (laughs) this has been on my bucket list for a long time i'm glad i finally got to see it at least see what what everyone likes so much about it even if it didn't fully connect with me in any way i'm appreciative of it yeah joe why don't you take us home all right yeah um, i don't know that i can add too much more than that either i i guess my thing is that the film does feel like it shouldn't work. And there's something to me that's a bit magic about the collision between the Western and the horror tropes. And yeah, I think it's beautiful. It feels different than a lot of other vampire films. And yeah, absolutely. We're celebrating Catherine Bigelow, Kyle, because she was doing things that other women either weren't being able to She was doing things that other female directors weren't being given the opportunity to do, or she was forcing people to let her do these things, and that's worth celebrating. Especially for someone who's willing to just put their foot in the door and be like, no, I actually do, like, I will show you why I'm good for this or something. Like, that's a very brave thing to do, Mm -hmm. just to shove your hand in the door and just be like, nope. I want to do this. I will show you why I'm going to do this. It's those excellent social skills she has. Oh uh, you know, a, who, who, a woman, who'd have thought? <laughs> Having know, good right? social Whoa. skills. <laughs> God, it, it pains me because it makes me wonder how many women didn't have the same sort of gumption, but had all of the directorial talent, which is really the fucking thing that should be mattering in these situations. Right. Anyway, we don't need to revisit or reopen these exactly. old ones. <laughs> no, I know, but it's one of those things where it's like when students are like, it, it comes down to sexism because it you is. can't, you cannot do the argument, oh, audiences don't want to see that. 
Because no one gives a fuck who the director is. Like, mainstream audiences do not care <laughs> who is directing a movie. Yeah, like, unless you're talking the absolute top tier, like, yes, we're going to sell this movie on Steven Spielberg. Tarantino. Yeah, but the reality is, is a lot of times films are directed by people that general audiences don't know. So there's absolutely no reason why it couldn't be a Catherine Bigelow or any other fucking talented person. So, yes, all this to say... I quite like Near Dark. Trace, I'm happy that you finally got the opportunity to watch it. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I guess now we're down to just the hunger for our 80s vampire films at some point. God, I know. Which I will happily revisit any time, but we're not doing it this year, y'all, so hold off. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But before we announce what we're covering next week, Kyle, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. It was nice to have a guest with passion for this film as well. Mm Mm-hmm. I am, once again, yeah, I am extremely glad to be here. I can't believe that I am here to talk about this movie, a movie that I'm so very fond of, and just really get to explain why I feel like this movie works and the small little moments and intricities of this film. Thank you both so very, very much. Well, you are welcome, but why don't you let our listeners know, where can they find you on social media? All right, folks, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at ChibiUFO, C-H-I-B-I-U-F-O. I do various postings about disability rights, horror, queer stuff, video games, retro video games, anime, just all sorts of random topics like that. And you can find me, uh, if you're at all interested in streaming, at my Twitch page at twitch.tv slash ChibiUFO. I usually do pretty much just streams of old retro video games that's my wheelhouse and uh yeah you can find me uh usually on those little circles and uh you can also find me on letterboxd at uh letterbox slash kyle f uh yes and i i post my little bite-sized reviews of movies on there and just uh yeah i just uh love to share my thoughts on movies and uh, you know just on odd movies and weird movies and movies that are a little off the beaten path there you go. Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers. Uh, join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered at Horror Queers. And uh, finally, we've got a YouTube channel with interviews, monthly hangouts, uh, queer horror short coverage. So go check that out. Um, Joe and I, you can see Joe and I look pretty. Um, (laughs) Sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. But if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We are now in April, so go subscribe to get episodes on Midnight, in which a deaf woman is stalked by a serial killer. Robert Eggers is The Northman. Adrian Lin's Return to the Erotic Thriller with Deep Water. And a special 10th anniversary minisode on Joe of Khan's detention, oh which is my treat. It, it's really for me, even though Joe loves it too, but I, I made us do this. <laughs> and of course, our audio commentary for the month will be on Anaconda just in time for its 25th anniversary. Oh my God. I love that we're doing anniversaries only on the audio commentaries this year, but also yeah. every time you say it, I fucking hate it. It's oh, That's your fault, but yes. <laughs> But Joe, Mm -hmm. what are we discussing next week? I don't exactly know how we fell into this programming, but we are not done with vampires. We're going to do another vampire film. 
but we are going to do a foreign one, and I'm very excited to revisit this. So we're going to go and check out Let the Right One In, Trace. Ooh, I actually have, I've only seen this once oh. back when it came out, so I'm excited to revisit it. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah, I just covered it on my YA podcast. So if folks want to learn all about that 500-page Swedish vampire book, you can listen to that, and then we will talk about the film in great detail next week. There we go. Well, until next week, we can cross out, finally, hmm. Near Dark. There we go. And cross it, Horror Queers. 